Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to episode 12 of One Step Beyond, the show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. And if that sounds a little non-specific, well, maybe that's intentional. Over the seven episodes I've put out beyond the original Kilimanjaro four-part documentary, oh, my name is Tony Fletcher, by the way, I've interviewed someone who got off the couch and started running to save their life. Someone who moved from New York to Colombia to reinvent themselves late in life. Someone else, yes, these are different people, who gave up drinking and moved from Brooklyn to the Catskills and discovered a new career in the process. Someone who started an environmentally sound and socially conscious business in Kenya. And a Brit who decided to run the Spartathlon course in Greece, unsupported, in their late 60s. And in the last episode, someone who kicked off their shoes to go running with as little on their feet as they could in the first place. That's a pretty good variety of guests, I hope you'll agree. But you may have noticed along the way that there's a little bit of a focus on running. That being my own personal hobby and this being my own personal podcast. And I'm fortunate right now to be among the 50 people who made it via lottery into this year's Cat's Tail Trail Marathon in the Catskills, the only one of the three trail races to survive the pandemic restrictions. The race takes place on Saturday, October 2nd, so as you can imagine, I've been busy getting the training in. This has allowed me to enjoy, even more than usual, both the glory and the brutality of the Catskill Mountains. And on a 16-mile loop up and over Slide, Cornell and Wittenberg last week, I listened to about five hours of podcasts on a wide variety of topics. And if there's one consistent takeaway from this smorgasbord of oral education and entertainment, it's that personalities count. I feel like I know some of these hosts, even though we've never met, and in most cases, never even waved hello across the cyber universe. One exception is Travels Beyond the Brochure by the Barefoot Backpacker, an asexual Brit who I exchange emails with, largely to tell him how much I enjoy his occasional forays into the podcast world, even if his podcasts on protests have very little to do with travel, per se. Maybe I don't need to hear all about his computer woes at the front of an episode entitled Beer Around the World, but I come away knowing him better for it. And once he did get onto the subject at hand, I found myself in full-throated agreement with all the assessments on which I could offer an opinion. Yes, for some reason, Americans do consider 5% alcohol to qualify as a session beer. I've also found myself digging Big and White, two expat Americans currently trapped in Nepal, a country that's had no international flights for six months now and recently imposed a second full lockdown. And yet somehow Big and White, that's their names I guess, are making the most of it. Their newest show, How Covid Life is Like Culture Shock, was full of laughter despite the weighty subject matter, and I have to hand it to them for the spoof sponsorship ad for Flat Hard Bed at the end. If you've ever tried sleeping in Thailand, you'll know of what they jest. 
And though I wasn't listening to this next show on my most recent long pod feast out on the mountains, another shout out to Shit Abroad, hosted by two Canadian expats, one currently trapped in Australia, the other in the UK, who similarly fill their episodes with laughter. It struck me that there is no show I can think of hosted by a pair of males that's anywhere near as funny, and that includes the Traveller's Blueprint episode on animals using drugs, which was hilarious by nature, if you know what I mean, especially given that I was on top of the mountains while listening to it, but not laughter-inducing. One thing that just about all my fave shows have in common is a Patreon page, where you can donate to finance the upkeep of the show and get bonus content in the process. I'm not there yet with One Step Beyond. It's quite enough just putting this out every two weeks and hustling social media to attract new listeners. But what I will do right now is what it seems every other show does, and shamelessly so, to say that if you have enjoyed what you've heard over the course of these dozen episodes, please pause what you're doing right now, look at your app, unless you're driving or cycling of course, in which case please pull over first, and see if it allows you to leave a rating or a review. And then, to please spread the love if it does. It feels a bit tawdry making this request, but if the biggest shows on NPR can do it, well who am I not to follow suit? And in case you don't want to miss a moment of this particular One Step Beyond, and you're busy promising yourself you'll get to the rating and review later, here's some music to keep you company while you take care of it right this minute. I recorded it with my son Noel. I'm pretty sure he doesn't think it's worthy of sharing, but given that he flatly refuses to listen to my voice any more than he has to at home, he didn't even tune into my podcast with the band The Pixies, and he loves them. I feel pretty safe saying he won't find out unless you tell him. And you wouldn't do that, would you? What else can we talk about before we get stuck into this episode's featured interview? Well, it turns out that the area I have called home for the last 15 years, around Woodstock and Phoenicia, and more recently in the Catskills gateway city of Kingston, is currently the hottest real estate market in the country. That's according to an article in the Washington Post on the very day I'm recording this, though there was already plenty evidence of what you might want to call irrational exuberance in the market round here, courtesy of those fleeing the confines of post-COVID New York City, with houses routinely going well above asking price, and the demographics of our home areas changing rapidly as a result. The article in the Post did not make me regret selling our house last year in the Catskills and taking a bath on the price in the process. It was necessary, at that time, to move on to the next stage of my life. And that, selling up, packing up, moving on, and hitting the road, is the subject of this episode in which I talk in detail to Jess Gomkowski. I first came across Jess on episode 11 of a lovely little podcast called Going Vegan. Now, being vegan is actually really, really important to me, and at some point, I'd like to make it the focus of an entire episode. But not yet. I found that a lot of people are very defensive about their eating habits, and I'm not looking to turn away listeners until I find a way to tackle this subject with the same kind of grace, humour, and lack of judgment that Jess, to her credit, exhibited on that particular show. Suitably impressed by her positive outlook, I went to search out her own podcast, 
Yogi Triathlete, which gives you an immediate clue as to two other important aspects of her professional and personal life. But instead, I found myself pointed to another interview with her, in which she explained how, in 2016, she and her husband, who goes by the initials BJ but is known as Beige, sold everything, including their house, and got rid of all their possessions, bar their triathlon gear, a carry-on suitcase each, and their dog. And with that, they set off on the road from the East Coast with no confirmed plan beyond their first stop, which was to set up their tent. Oh yeah, they brought a tent along, in Lake Placid, in preparation for the Ironman triathlon there, where they would start realising their intent of serving people, in whichever ways they could, on those travels. I found this story all the more intriguing, because it was in 2016 that I set off on a similar journey. Mine was around the world, backpacking through a dozen countries with my then wife and our then 11-year-old younger son. In fact, if you listened to episode 9 and my interview with Manu Preshta, you'll know that we ended up in Kathmandu, Nepal, visiting House with Heart, a home for abandoned children where Manu was raised. The Manu is now studying nursing in the USA helps confirm something that Jess imparts in this show, which is that we're all capable of fulfilling greatness in our lives, whatever that greatness may be, and despite the very real obstacles that society can and does put in our way. When I set out to interview Jess, I was planning to go over the nuts and bolts, the whys and wherefores of this kind of incredible life upheaval, because I want to talk more in future episodes about hitting the road, either for a finite or infinite amount of time. And I already have a couple of further interviews lined up on this very, very subject. But our conversation took a couple of important tangents into Jess's experiences leading to and her work as a mindset coach. I've also interjected here and there some of my own travel stories. And as ever, the interview has been edited. Jess and I talked for an hour and a half. And don't worry, I know you have other things to do in your life besides listening to us. And so, without further ado, I'd like to invite you to step back or step out, discard any distractions, and get ready to go. One step Jess, lovely to have you here. I can see you on Zoom over in California, I believe. Yes, down in, uh, actually I'm in North County, San Diego, so pretty south, but north um, of the city. What possessed you to give up all your possessions and hit the road? Well, I would say there was uh, three really defining points. One happened many, many years ago when we were living in Boulder, Colorado. And my husband and I have always been entrepreneurs. We were working for ourselves. And we had, in this house that we owned, we had, I had an office and he had an office. And he called me into his office and he said, you got to check this out. And it was a tiny home and I had never seen anything like it in my life. And we were in, um, we were in like our mid thirties, early thirties, mid thirties. We had bought the house. We got the grown up furniture. We were doing all the things we were making money. And there was something about this minimal lifestyle that just captured me. And in that moment we were like, we want that. And so when people hear about how we got rid of everything in 2016, I think they think that it was like an overnight process and it wasn't, it was about 10 years in the making, uh, really purposefully starting to pay down debt and not acquire debt 
and not acquire more things without other things leaving the house, right? So we had we created this rule two in, uh, one in, two out. The second epiphany, if we can call it that, came in 2012. At this point, we were living in Newport, Rhode Island. I was living in my dream home. Uh, we were back close to family. Both my husband and I are from New England. And we had minimized significantly moving from Colorado back to Rhode Island. So we got rid of the TV. Uh, we had only had one car pretty much the entire time, but everything started to get even more minimal, meaning if I had a candle, it was burning. It, we had four plates, we had four napkins, you know, so we could have a cup, we could have people over for dinner, but there was no drawer that was stuffed full of extra things. And I was walking through the dining room one day and I just was stopped in my tracks and I looked around and it was the life that I had always wanted. It was minimal by American standards. It was beautiful. We had beautiful furniture, beautiful artwork. Everything was paid for. And in that moment, I couldn't breathe because I realized I remembered that moment of wanting that tiny living and seeing, even though we were living simply, that we still had so far to go. The third and final factor came into play in December 2015. My husband and I had just finished racing Ironman Cozumel. We had just said goodbye to um, our eldest dog. And I just felt really lost. I felt like I was hitting a ceiling every day. And I just sat in meditation. And I've been meditating for quite some time now. And I was sitting in meditation in the quiet and I just saw, I mean, it sounds so cheesy and I could recreate the font, but it was white and it just said California. And I came out of that meditation and I texted my husband at work. He was working a job that he didn't love, was not filling up his heart. And I said, we're out of here. I've got a plan. And I really had no plan other than in that moment, in that moment of meditation, I knew we were leaving. Fortunately for Jess, Beach was immediately all in. The plan morphed into a complete reinvention of their lives. And over the course of that week came in what became known as the Ride the High Vibe Tour, where we basically moved into our car got rid of pretty much everything we owned. We had agreed on what we were going to take as far as we had a carry-on suitcase each. That was it. Our whole life was going in there. We had our race bikes, a backpack for our um, wetsuits and things like that. And then, of course, a backpack for our dog. And, um, and over the course of six months, we started getting rid of everything. And then in June of 2016, we literally moved into our Honda Fit, which is a tiny little car. And we pulled out of our driveway with no itinerary, no budget, and no idea we were, where we were going to live, although we had in our hearts that we were really crossing our fingers it was going to be Southern California. In my own family's case, we did not set off forever. We didn't sell the house, at least not then. But it was a massive uprooting all the same that meant being willing to live out of a backpack each for a year. And considering that our kid carried his guitar on his back, we're talking about travelling with almost nothing. And like Jess and Beige, we too had a, I guess, a lovely house with lots of nice possessions. And yet, I can vouch with absolute certainty 
that the entire time we were on that trip, and for all the frequent discomforts, I did not miss any of those home comforts. As I put it to Jess, I realized in that process that, wow, it's true, possessions don't actually bring you the complete, I mean, that some of them are great, but they don't bring you happiness of themselves. No, they're inanimate objects. How can they, how can they bring us happiness? And um, this, this brings up a huge area where I think that we can all adopt, if we don't already have this mindset, adopt this new mindset, or maybe even just be willing to entertain it. That when I look at like the beautiful drapes that I have in my house, and I, and I feel that beauty and that joy, because they're colorful, and they're vibrant. I don't, think that those drapes are bringing me joy and vibrancy, I'm bringing the joy and the vibrancy to the drapes. So the sunset doesn't make me feel peaceful. The sunset shows me that of the peace that's already inside of me. We are the most powerful beings on this earth. There is nothing outside of us that can make us happy or angry. The only thing that the things outside of us can do is show us what's already within us. And that's how we really use this life and this incredible world as our, our constant teacher so that we can continue to zoom out and have these, you know, 10,000 foot views of life where we can entertain perspectives of others and ways people live. And also that we don't get stuck in this part of us that wants to stay safe and small because I don't believe that that's who we are in our essence. Because I believe that what's on our heart and what we love is why we came here and what we need to express. I really believe it's our duty, whatever that is. Maybe your, what's on your heart is you love being the custodian of a school. Wonderful. <laughs> There's no mission that sits on the heart of a being that's less than another. So is that what sits on our heart is what we are here to do. And that's how we believe that we'll create a better world is by people living more of who they are. Because Tony, nobody can play your role like you and nobody can play just like me. And so it's so important for us to really find our most authentic version of ourselves so that we can be fully expressed here in this life. All of that may sound, and indeed does sound, extremely positive. But one thing I know about Jess from listening to the other interviews with her is that in the earlier version of her life, she found herself in enormous credit card debt with a sense that many of us may have experienced if we too have found ourselves in that position, which is the fear that we may never get ahead of it. And with that comes the realisation that if we have any hope of getting ahead, we need to understand and address what allowed us to get into credit card debt to begin with? I was really in this belief that if I bought this beautiful piece of furniture that I was aching over in the Pottery Barn catalog, that I would have the best house and I would have the best. I mean, this is this is kind of really ego stuff, but I've got to be fully transparent. You know, I wasn't born um, as uh, as empathetic as I am now. <laughs> But I was very much like, you know, I'm an athlete, so I was very competitive and I wanted to have the best house and I wanted to have the best furniture and I wanted to have the best and best and best and best. And so that's very much like living through this narrow viewfinder of the ego, looking outside of myself for happiness. 
And so we did um, incur some credit card debt back in the day. And when we were living in Boulder, Colorado, around the same time that I'm introduced to this tiny living concept, I remember opening up a credit card bill one day and it said, you know, if you pay this amount of money for the next 15, you know, 15 years, like you'll have it paid off. And I'm thinking, I'm paying double that every month. Like I'm never like, it's going to take so long to get out of debt. And I realized that was when we were like, we have to stop incurring debt. And then there's another piece of that, a mindset piece, a belief that we can actually be debt free. And of course, there was a belief, another belief that was tied to that, that if we're debt free, then we're going to be happy. But again, I realized that that means nothing if you're not tending to, you know, what needs to be cleaned up in your heart and in your truth um, of why you're here and what you're here to do on this earth. In the realization of their own life potential, Jess and Beige were able to sell their house, as we've gathered. They sold their possessions. They got debt free. In fact, they hit the road with their Ride the High Vibe tour with money in their pockets. And they worked hard to build their yogi triathlete business along the way. But when we landed in California, you know, we went 100% in with yogi triathlete and we said, okay, there's no plan B, like we're going we're gonna to do this. And here we are as athletes teaching how meditation and mindfulness, how doing nothing can enhance your performance. And nobody wanted to hear about that. I mean, nobody even wanted to do yoga, let alone sit and close their eyes and shut their mouth and not move. So we, it was like, we had a financial dismantlement. It was, I mean, this isn't what anybody wants to hear, right? Like when they say like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, she took this huge risk and they're doing great. Well, we did take a huge risk and we are doing great. But in the middle of that, we, we faced every fear that we could ever imagine. I mean, it was like if money came out of a faucet, it was like somebody shut the faucet off. And so it was a really beautiful time for us to realize that we've been debt-free. Being debt-free did not bring us any kind of freedom. And here we are going into debt. I mean, I'm talking about we're putting our rent and our groceries on a credit card. And we are in total gratitude because we're practicing attuning to abundance and changing our relationship to money. So if it, I want to just be sure I understand correctly. So at the point that you left uh, Rhode Island here on the East Coast, you had managed to clear off your debts, you sold everything, you're heading off on this journey, the journey is wonderful of itself. But when you get to your what turns out to be your destination, and you go all in on on uh, your, your, your business model, the, the yogi triathlete, you're saying it doesn't take off immediately. You run out of the money. You've got to put money. You've actually now got to put like regular bills, not pottery barn, but regular bills on a credit card. But you are, you are, you, if I'm gathering what you're saying, it's that you are now properly tuned into what it was that you wanted to be doing. You had faith it would work. Yes, exactly. Oh. That's a beautiful way to sum it up. A hundred percent. It's funny. I'm talking to you here on Zoom and you've got this lovely backdrop behind you and there's an elephant like right behind you, which it will show up on some of our social media because I've got a note and I'm going to jump to this now. It's actually the elephant in the room about this conversation. It's very easy with a podcast to find your niche little audience and everybody can kind of, you know, everybody loves what you're doing. I, I'm kept very grounded by the fact that this show also goes out on Radio Kingston on a um a non-profit community about FM radio, you know, that's a wonderful station. I get to use the studios there. It's uh, 
uh, it's very diverse and the listenership is very diverse. And I can imagine people that maybe they're listening to this at home, they're trapped in their homes during the pandemic, uh, maybe they're struggling with student debt, maybe they're unable to pay their own rent this month. Maybe they're in you know, single moms, single dads, trying to, trying to raise kids. They, they, maybe they're lucky enough to have work right now, but it's minimal paying work. And I can just imagine people listening to this saying, yeah, easy for you. This is a very elitist thing. You just pack up what you've got and you hit the road and it all works out at the other end. This does not relate to me. I'm ready to turn off the radio. What do you say to those people about the situations they're in and how what you were able to do, uh, how that can relate and what you can offer them in that regard? I went through a very terrifying time. It was terrifying. I mean, no sleep at night, um, not knowing how the rent was going to get paid, um, not, you know, not knowing if this business was going to take off. And at the same time, because I've created a relationship with myself through meditation, I knew that I was going to be okay. I knew that I was a survivor. That that relationship with yourself, and I believe it's through the practice of meditation, is one that is, I highly recommend if somebody is in a situation where they're struggling to start going in because that mind of not knowing how the groceries are going to end up in the fridge or the rent's going to get paid or if this business is going to take off, all of that is about what's going to happen next. It is not about what's happening right now. And in those most terrifying moments, in the middle of the night, I would look at where I was right now and I would say, I'm fine right now. I'm fine right now. I'm getting a breath right now. What more do I need? What more do I need? So overwhelm and fear, it's always about what's happening next. And so this practice of meditation is just about paying attention and mindfulness, paying attention to what you're doing while you're doing it. And that's going to deepen your relationship with the present moment. It's as simple as this. Are we paying attention to the problem or are we opening up to the solution? Because if we're paying attention to the problem, if we're paying attention to how low our pay rate is, if we're paying attention to the kids that have to be homeschooled and how am I going to work, if we're, if we're constantly attuning to the problem, which is what most people on this earth do, we're missing the solution. If we're attuning to the lack, we're missing the abundance. There is no lack in this universe. So this is a really important thing for people to start to digest. There is no lack in this universe. We put so much clout in money. It's crazy. As noted in the introduction, I think it was necessary that the conversation took this turn. It's just been very much on my mind in terms of wanting to tackle this, this, this sense of creating a freedom for ourselves and saying, leave it all behind, hit the road. It's going to be wonderful. Um, and also just recognizing that for a lot of people will just say, I cannot do that. You have no idea of my, my situation. You know, let's look at Viktor Frankl. Like, I mean, everybody knows Viktor Frankl, like Holocaust survivor, right? He was so 
strong-willed and so attuned to the fact that nobody could steal his joy. The freedom that we seek has nothing to do with our external environment. The freedom that we seek is the freedom from the mind, meaning understanding that there is something more that we can calibrate to, to use kind of a big word, calibrate to, besides just the worry and the thoughts in our, in our heads. So what we focus on expands. So there is no better way to get evicted than to focus on being scared of getting evicted. It really is true. I don't believe anybody is a victim in this life or a victimizer. This is all about, um, we know from, from Albert Einstein, who was a great meditator, that everything is energy. Every, we have a vibrational resonance. Our, we are made up of tens of trillions of cells in our bodies that have a positive and a negative charge. We are like battery packs, okay? I have attuned to so much self-suffering, so much darkness, so much overwhelm, so much fear that I got to a point in my life, I said, there's gotta be another way or I don't wanna be here anymore. And so I gave myself that shot. It was that leading right up to your making that journey or was this much earlier in yeah. life? No, no earlier. much earlier in life. Right. Yeah, I mean, much earlier in life, probably in my 20s. And I just started to seek a better way to live. And without, I mean, I, I am under the guidance of a meditation teacher and have been for the last 10 years. But prior to that, it was just intuitively... I was just looking at more things in life that felt satisfying as opposed to focusing on what was so unsatisfying. So I get it. I've lived on that other side. I've lived in the darkness. I've lived in that darkness. I can promise you. And I, I you know, but I also can't suffer enough to end somebody else's suffering. We are not victims in this life. We are powerful beings. And some of us are born into situations that don't feel like we are powerful. But I believe that if we feel powerless, that it is part of our purpose to start to attune to the power that is within us. Joy is our birthright. Joy is our birthright. And when we can start to release external circumstances as, you know, the Lord of our mood, you know, or our our positivity or our negativity, you know, we have to release that, this idea that our joy is anything but our, our own ability. If I can put the words in your mouth and check, I got them right. It's partly about because that will put you in a more positive frame of mind, which will make you more capable of dealing with the problems you have to face today. Right. A hundred percent. Yes. Well said. And with this, we were able to return to the original conversation. But it quickly brought up another incredibly important aspect of packing up your life. Not just selling off those possessions that have monetary value where you can, but getting rid of those that may have no resale value and yet carry a hefty emotional attachment. This is pushing the edge here on what is like acceptable. But I ripped up pictures of my grandparents and my nephew and I threw them away. And oh my God, it's like embarrassing to even say, but I think it's so important because when I was 
because what what I was first doing was I was just throwing the photos away and then that was weird because I'm looking in the trash can and there's my nephew and there's my grand my nana you know and I'm like okay this is just feels weird because there's a banana peel on top of them and so I thought well maybe I'll rip them up and then that even felt more violent and so I just sat and I would breathe and I would say this is a part of the process and you know you need to get rid of this stuff because this is a really beautiful moment was I was getting rid of my grandmother's jewelry that was in a box in a box under the bed and it had been in a box in a box under the bed when we lived in Colorado and then when we lived in Rhode Island and I just kept moving it and I never wore it and I just kept moving it and I think that a lot this will ring true to a lot of people and so here I am you know getting rid of pictures and I'm getting rid of this jewelry and I just sat like when it felt overwhelming when it felt horrible when it felt sad I would just sit and I would get myself calm. And in that moment, I just thought about my Nana and I felt her hand in my hand. And I had this vision of walking on the beach with her when I was younger. And I thought, that's the memory, not the jewelry, not the obligation or the, or the guilt that I have to hang on to this. And so I donated it and I donated it to big brothers and big sisters because I thought, my gosh, somebody's going to get this super fun, beautiful jewelry, whether they use it for dress up or they gift it to somebody. But what an honor that my Nana can now go bring joy, you know, in, and express herself through this donation. It's interesting. I can totally relate to, look, if you're not going to wear something, let it go to somebody else who's going to find happiness. But I feel like if photos are only get taken up one scrapbook and it's family history, you know, that's family history. I, um, I know we didn't used to have cameras, but now that we do, that's family history. So on a personal level, that's something I'm not willing to give up. But did you find that liberating to ultimately to, to rip up those pictures? Did you ultimately feel liberated by it? Yeah, yes. Um, it felt right for me. And I think, you know, liberation, I'm not sure, but I think this brings up a really good point. It doesn't feel good for you to let go of those photos. Don't let go of those photos. Although I experienced different things while I was getting rid of the photos, like the guilt or the obligation or the sadness, I was 100% sure that I wanted to get rid of those things. Uh, I think this was BJ. Uh, you're both triathletes and he has accumulated a lot of medals and you gave those away. Um, I think there's a little video of giving those away. Mm -hmm. The medal thing is kind of important because that, again, is meant to be a symbol of something that you achieved. It's something that you should be holding on to. Look what you achieved. Um, did you have your own medals to give away? How easy was it for him to give those away and just say, no, you know what? I don't need these medals. We've got to hit the road. They're not coming with me. I, uh, how am I going to use these medals on the road? Yeah, well, the medals are heavy, especially Ironman medals. They're big, right? The longer you go in the distance, they, the bigger they get. And, uh, God, we had so many medals. And if you watched that video, you saw I had them all on the kitchen table. There were so many medals. And in that video, I haven't watched that video in so long, but in that video, I believe at the end, I start to get choked up because I'm looking at the medals and I'm saying, oh, here's the Iron, first Ironman that BJ and I did together. And here's the half marathon that I ran with a broken foot. And, you know, this is my first and, and feeling all of that. And then sitting with this idea that if I don't have the medals, did it ever happen? 
Here's the irony though, Jess, is that the races I'm most proud of doing are races where you don't even get a t-shirt, let alone a medal. So I've done some, you know, these ultras, <laughs> the ones that, that like the things that mattered. I'm, I'm lucky if I've got a photograph. For me, these medals are the equivalent of Jess's Nana's jewelry. They follow me around in a shoebox. I was going to get rid of them last year upon moving, but when I discussed it on my running group's Facebook page, I was talked out of it. You earned them, people said. You should feel proud of them. And I guess I do. But fact is, I don't even bother to display them. And after this show broadcasts, I'm going to photograph them each, one by one, tell a little story about them, and follow Jess and Beige's example. What we did is we donated them to an organization called Medals for Medals. And this is a great organization which um, they use these medals in hospitals and they give them to patients who are really overcoming, um, you know, illness and adversity and uh, impossibility and experiencing miracles. And they're gifting these medals. And so when I had emailed them, they couldn't believe we were sending them Ironman medals. Like, are you sure? And I was like, oh yeah, you can have all of them. And since moving to California, we make a practice you know, when you finish a race, a long race, sometimes you're a little out of it. So sometimes oh, I yeah. just grab the, grab oh, the yeah. medal because I can't <laughs> even speak. But a lot of times we just refuse the medal. We just say, oh, no, thank you, which is weird because they're like, what? Um, but we did accumulate maybe about 10 medals or so over the last couple of years. And we actually just shipped those out as well. So when you were able to set off on your journey, it's a carry-on suitcase. It's your backpack of triathlon gear presumably i think you mentioned you've got you therefore you need bikes so you, you you would have had your bikes but they're all fitting into one car when you waved goodbye i guess you weren't even waving goodbye to a house because you'd sold it i i want to i'm going to use this word again because if you've got a better one please please offer it was that a liberating moment or indeed was it terrifying to set off and just go goodbye newport rhode island uh I love that you asked that question because two things that day when we pulled out of the driveway, I remember pulling out of the driveway and I was in the passenger seat and I looked back on the curb of all just like the lingering trash and the things that hadn't sold or we hadn't given away. And I remember feeling sick and thinking, I never want to like leave a pile of trash like that ever again. That is disgusting. That is, that made me sick. And I've never forgotten that vision. Um, and I hope that I never, I mean, I'm really consciously living my life. So I never see that vision again, as far as what I leave in my path. And then the second thing was we drove out of the driveway and we were like, well, let's grab a coffee for the road. Like it's still life, you know? And we realized really quick, like really quick, like maybe 15 minutes into the trip that you can get rid of everything you own, but you can't get rid of yourself. Absolutely. So all the baggage that you're carrying that gets a microscope on it. That gets a, that gets a bright light shined on it. So I had a, I, we got cued in really quick that this road trip was going to be about deep self inner work, discovery and curiosity. And it was. Yeah, absolutely. You could see me smile there because that is, that is so true. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you can keep trying to change your situation, but you if, if there's a change you're looking for, the change is actually going to come from inside you. The, the, everything else is just you in a different situation, whether it's in your so-called dream house or living out of a car and, 
and and hitting the road. How were you able to? Well, did you work as you traveled? Did you feel it necessary to work? Was it particular to the roles that you have? If you did take on work, so this whole tour was about spreading the message of Yogi Triathlete. And if there was a tagline for or a purpose for the tour, it was to raise awareness that living a more vibrant life is within reach for everyone right now. So for some people that meant um, their first green smoothie, for some people it meant cleaning out their linen closet, for some people it meant having that conversation that they had been avoiding for so long. Um, for some people, it meant leaving a marriage. For some people, it meant starting to listen to our podcast. So we just wanted to let everybody know or spread this message that living a more vibrant life is, is yours right now. And so we were 100% into Yogi Triathlete at that point. We had a handful of athletes. So I think maybe we were making $400 a month leading into this, like, for a couple of years leading into this, my husband and I would ask all the time, just kind of ask up into the air, how can we serve? How can we serve? How can we serve? How can we, you know, use what we have um, learned over the years, what we have practiced in our life? How can we serve the greater good? That desire to serve turned out to include, among other things, yoga classes taught by Jess, some triathlon coaching by Beige and also volunteering at the farm animal sanctuary. The way they chose to use their time on their journey may not be applicable to the way you can use yours on your own trip. I found on our journey, the one place we intended to volunteer did not actually get our applications properly processed. I learned that other volunteer opportunities are largely scams, but also that I needed to take time to experience our journey within the moment. I was already editing a book at various stops in our travels. We were road schooling our kid too. And the thought of starting a podcast, for example, or trying to contribute freelance journalism would have meant yet more time spent on our devices rather than exploring our surroundings. And it's in exploring your surroundings that you get to meet other people. We met a couple in Goa at a breakfast table who almost immediately kind of begged us to come stay with them in Uzbekistan. On a walk back to the station from Calcutta's cricket ground, I talked to somebody who asked me to come stay with him in Kashmir. And in Sri Lanka, out running, I met this guy on a bicycle who stopped and talked with me and really, again, almost begged me to come back with him and have tea with his family. I still regret that I didn't. It was so awesome and just so beautiful to see how generous and and loving people are and welcoming. And really, that's like our essence, I think, you know, is we're caring and we're here to care for each other. And so we saw a lot of that. We did some camping. We did some some hotels where I was like tucking my pants into my socks and like being like, oh, my God, I don't think I want to pull these sheets up. And then some really luxurious places that we stayed. I mean, we stayed everywhere from a tent to a 12,000 square foot house. Um, it was just so cool. It was everything. It was the contrast of life. It was the abundance of having money. It was the fear of spending it. It was the 12,000 square foot house that people welcomed us in. It was the tent and the, and the rainstorm that we got caught in. Like it was just the contrast of life that makes everything so rich and so adventurous. Again, that experience was very similar to our own. And in telling it, I have to acknowledge the very thing I put to Jess earlier on in this conversation. 
that there are many people listening who may not be able to see a world in which they can travel it. I do get that. And so, yes, the next step in that case may just be sitting calmly and figuring out your next step beyond that step. I didn't get to do my trip until I was 50, and it came about in large part because I'd never done it, but felt that I was at a point where I was willing to take calculated risks so as to do it. And so, on our journey, we too got to stay in a variety of places. I have a friend in the UK, in the music business, who, I think it's really important to note, was born very much in the working class in Northern Ireland, and worked his way up the old-fashioned way, from the mailroom. He actually did well enough that when travels took him to Sri Lanka, the large island at the foot of India, formerly known as Ceylon, he fell in love with the place instantly, and almost impulsively bought a villa there. He keeps it staffed, visits it when he can, rents it out selectively, and makes a point not only of supporting a number of local charities, but of donating the villa to close friends when possible. For years he had said to me, if you ever find yourself in Sri Lanka, it's yours for two weeks. And for years I thought, yeah, right, like I'll ever find myself in Sri Lanka. But when it came time to planning our trip, a year away, he was good for his word. And we made that villa our halfway restorative respite, which after a month backpacking through India, believe me, was much needed. And yet, for all of that, some of the happiest moments I had truly involved the greatest simplicities. Sleeping in a tent in the Great Rift Valley of Tanzania. Sleeping on the floor of a homestay in the north of Borneo. Sleeping in a tea hut under a mountain of blankets in the Nepali Himalaya. Trying to sleep amidst the smell of oil on a moored cargo boat in the Sundarbans of India's West Bengal. Also trying to sleep on an overnight train from Calcutta north towards Kalimpong. The worst it might have got was when we took a trek into the Himalaya of Sikkim in northern India. And I got a bout of possibly altitude-induced indigestion that caused hourly runs to the bathroom that coincided with us sleeping under canvas during a premature monsoon downpour. I didn't get much, if any, sleep that night, though I did get very, very wet. But when I look back on it, what's not to love? We'd reached the end of the road in India and then gone further into the mountains. It was dirt cheap, by the way. And we were literally on the other side of the world, so close to Tibet that we could almost see it. In that moment, that precise breathing moment, even under canvas, even when it was raining heavily, I knew I had to run to the bathroom again. There was nowhere else I would rather have been, and everything with my world was exactly as it was meant to be. But neither our journey, nor that of Jess and Beige in 2016, was destined to go on forever. So you got to California at the end of this. You, you were doing a cross-country trip, Rhode Island, East Coast, to uh, California, West Coast. Uh, was there, a, um, again, a fear? Would you admit to having a fear that, oh my gosh, we may get to California and find out it's not where we want to settle? No, I actually, that never even occurred. Um, and I, you know, we had, you had mentioned the podcast when we were in Arizona and I was a bit paralyzed in that, in that experience because we had run out of States and my, my thing was like, oh my gosh, like it's going to happen. Like we're going to live in California and because we knew we weren't going to go back every time we stopped along the way and we added up that we basically stopped and repacked the car 36 times in six months. Like we basically moved 36 times. Um, 
that every time we landed somewhere, we would really feel into it. And we would say, okay, is this where we're supposed to be? And, and we just kept getting this hit, like we got to keep going west. We got to keep going west. And so I was really excited to end up in California because I thought, oh my gosh, like this is it. Like that, that hit that I got in that meditation, like it's here and I'm living it. So why yeah, San, there why, was no doubt. So it sounds like you got to San Diego and you'd explored up and down the coast and where you were, you were like, San Diego's it. This is, this is the place that's been calling yep. us. Yep. It's the place for sure. I mean, I feel like I've lived here my whole life. I feel like I'm home. I'm, I'm home. I mean, one thing that living on the road taught me is that home is actually wherever you are, right? Like you are, I am my own home. But as far as feeling an environment that is so perfectly suited for me, it's where I live now. Right. I want to ask you before just wrapping this up, it's a very important part of it. We're talking about why people might be fearful of taking an adventure like this. Well, if they, they have a partner, whether they're married or not, they might say, oh my gosh, the thought of it's being 24-7 with this person. You know, I love this person dearly, but I do not want to be with them 24-7. Did you have any hardships in your relationship? Did you have any sort of button of heads where you were just, whoa, this is too intense spending this much time together? Well, you know, my husband and I are really open with our communication and we both meditate and we both know beyond doubt that I can't pretend that he can make me feel any way. All he is is my constant teacher to show me if I've got frustration inside of me, if I've got judgment inside of me, if I've got love inside of me. So yeah, it, it was, there was a lot of time together. We spend a lot of time together. We've always worked together. We met at work. We've had businesses together. We've been together for 20, over 23 years. Um, we train together. Like I love, he is my soulmate. I love him as much as I did the first time I saw him and fell in love with him. So, and, and we don't graze over the fact that we have a very, very strong connection and loving connection. Um, we love each other so much but we also know that we'd be okay without each other. Um, we're really strong independently and very powerful together. Um, it's a very special relationship, but I will say that when we finally parked the car at our apartment complex and got out of the car for the last time, we fist pumped each other and we said, we are bulletproof. Because there were times where it was very close quarters and there were times where I said, you know, just drop me off just drop me off. I need space. And he would drop me off, you know, in a town. And I would say, I'll text you when I'm ready. And I think the beautiful thing about our relationship is that doesn't warrant a whole conversation. He doesn't make it about him. Oh, what's wrong? Let's talk about it. No, just drop me off. Cause he knows that I need something. I got to work something out. I need space. I need alone time. So he drops me off. I text him. I get back in the car. Great. Um, it's, it's really cool, but I can t say that for all couples, like it's about ownership of what it is that we carry, you know, that we maybe aren't facing or looking at. And also open communication is huge. Own your stuff. Yeah. Own your stuff is very important along with uh, let, let it go. That's uh, three other very important words, which of course apply to when you decide to let everything go. 
if I'm to put you on the spot and say, you know, what it, what, what are the, what would be the, the, the three takeaways from doing this? If I have put you on the spot, I apologize, but are there like, can you, can you think, wow, what would be, you know, I, mean, I guess I'm just asking, what are your takeaways? Distill it down to three things that you can say to somebody else who may be saying, I'd love to do this, but, 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 but. Yeah, well, the first takeaway is that you will face every fear that's keeping you from not taking that risk. So get aligned with that because you will 100% face every fear along the way. But fear and excitement have the same physiological reaction in the body. So if it's fearful or exciting is our choice. Um, the second thing is that people in their nature are loving and giving and welcoming. And when we open up to that, we will see more evidence of that in our life, that we don't have to do anything alone, that nobody is ever alone. And when we take a risk, you'll be so surprised of all the people that will support you and want to continue to support you for the whole, they just wanna be a part of what you're doing. And the third thing is trust yourself. Trust yourself. And the way that we increase that trust is by getting quiet and going in and starting to act on that little voice that's been talking to us for so many years about this one thing that we just love to do but the intellect gets in the way and says, well, we can't make money doing that. Trust yourself. Trust that that is not there for, by happenstance. That that little voice inside of you, that subtle voice that has been talking for a day or for 20 years, it won't stop until you act on it. Trust yourself. You've got this. Like, you've got this. <laughs> You can find Jess and Beige at yogitriathlete.com. But be warned, these guys are active. There's the podcast. Actually, there are two podcasts, Yogi Triathlete and Awake Athlete. There's a blog. There's the coaching, athletic and mindset and nutrition and yoga. And Jess has also taken her vegan experiences and written not one but two cookbooks. The High Vibe Recipes for the Athlete Appetite and High Vibe Pie, Pizza Night Finally Done Right. Both books are vegan, or as some people prefer to call it, plant-based, though they don't say as much on the front. But nor does it say as much anywhere at Sweet Marissa's Bakery in Uptown Kingston, and I don't notice anyone complain about the food there, either. And in case you were wondering, Jess and Beige did not end up buying the tiny house, at least not yet. Instead, for now, they found themselves a sweet studio apartment by the beach in the village of Carlsbad. Little did they know when they first opted to settle in San Diego, but the city is a mecca for triathletes. And maybe we'll do an episode on that activity in the future too. And who knows, maybe we'll get Beige on that show to discuss it. What you can expect to hear on the next episode is an interview I already have in the bag with Vanessa's We Say Goddard, the author of Still Running, The Art of Meditation in Motion, just published by Shabala Books.
it feels like a natural follow-on from this episode. I know, as we say, from the Zen Mountain Monastery in Mount Tremper, though the interview we conducted by phone is probably the longest conversation we've ever had. I hope you'll be back to join me. One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher, partially at the studios of Radio Kingston. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher and the theme song is by Madness, used with their permission. Thanks, chaps. The logo is by Mark Lerner. Thanks, Mark. You can subscribe to an occasional newsletter or just reach out via email. One Step Beyond at ijamming.net I-J-A-M-M ing.net and of course you can find us on social media just search one step beyond with tony fletcher and we should come up on instagram facebook and twitter one step beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered and it's hosted by acast all these links and addresses can be found in the show notes hitting the subscribe button and or leaving a positive rating and or review We'll bring you unicorns full of karmic lollipops through the ether. But if you don't have time to connect, that's understandable. We all know the world is a busy, busy place with far too many distractions. And if you made it this far, the show must be doing something right. So until next time, enjoy your travels, however close to home they may be. Make the most of your endeavours. And I hope they bring you peace and joy. (laughs) 